what we're talking about is not so new. You know, black people have been organizing in, in the UK for the last hundred years. Pan-African organizations, sea, sea men, seafarers organization, um, the Garveyites, Amy Garvey, all of those, this organization has been going for a long time. So there is not one little space. Make your space. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for this exciting, exciting conversation on Black women, women's radical resistance in Britain, an intergenerational conversation with Dr. Beverly Bryan and Jade Bentil. My name is Jamie Swift. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the executive director of Black Women Radicals. And Black Women Radicals is a Black feminist advocacy organization, and we are dedicated to uplifting and centering the power of Black, feminist, black feminisms globally. And so I'm super excited to be partnering up with Haymarket Books on this event, like I said, about Black women's radical resistance in Britain, right? So we know that Black women's radical resistance and resilience in Britain has and continues to fuel, sustain, and transform social movements in the European context and outside of it. As leaders, organizers, survivors, and resistors, Black women's activism in Britain and in the African diaspora is critical to past, present, and even future understandings of the Black radical tradition. With this, how do we honor, celebrate, and learn from Black British women radicals who paved the way for us to be here? So this conversation features two powerhouse uh, Black women organizers, educators, scholars who I have the honor to be in conversation with. So first and foremost, um, I would like to say that also, too, this event is a part of Black Women Radicals Afrofeminisms in Europe series. So if you want to check uh, our other events in our series on BlackWomenRadicals.com, please feel free to do so. But this series is a political interrogation celebration of European Afrofeminisms and Black feminisms. So I have the exciting opportunity to, um, you know, introduce our amazing, amazing guests. And like I say, um, this is just like an honor and joy for me to be talking with these amazing Black women educators, organizers, and scholars. So first and foremost, we have Dr. Beverly Bryan, or should I say the Dr. Beverly Bryan. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Beverly Bryan was a founder member of the Brixton Black Women's Group in the Organization of Women of African and Asian Descent, OWAD a Saturday school organizer, a mainstream primary school teacher who pioneered Black history, teaching in her classroom in the 1970s, and a member of the Black British Panther movement. She is a co-author of the classic book, Heart of the Race, Black Women's Lives in Britain, which detailed the collective experiences of ordinary Black women, their relationship to the British state through its long history of slavery, empire and colonialism, and their fight for equality from post-war to 1980s Britain. A long-life educator, Brian retired as professor of language education from the University of the West Indies, Jamaica, where she now lives in the country of her birth. So thank you so much to Dr. Beverly Bryan for being here. Hi. 
So next up, we have the powerhouse, Jade Bentil. Jade Bentil is a Black feminist historian and a history uh, doctor philosophy candidate at the University of Oxford. Her scholarship uses oral history methodologies to center the experiences of women of African and African-Caribbean descent in Britain and their long histories of rebellion, refusal, and resistance. Jade's debut book, Rebel Citizen, draws upon oral history interviews to explore the intimate recollections of Black women who migrated to Britain following the Second World War and will be published by Alan Lane in 2022. Jade, thank you so much for being here. And I have to have a sign, you know, autograph uh, a copy of, of your book when it comes out. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, of course. So for the first part of this discussion, um, I think it's really important to contextualize Black women's belonging in Britain. I'm talking about migration, citizenship, and identity. So do you both mind, um, particularly from intergenerational perspectives, share your various perspectives on belonging, migration, and citizenship, and learning, growing, thriving, and resisting um, in Britain? Okay, you want me to start, Jamie? You want me to start? Yes, yes um, that's quite, a, that's quite a, a long question, and it involves quite a, a bit of explaining. So maybe you want me to start with um, the early migration, how I came to be in the UK. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll start there. Um I'm in Jamaica now. This is where I was born. But I left here at the age of nine um, to go to the to go to the UK with my with my 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 two sisters. Now my parents were already there. They're part of that family chain migration that we refer to as a Windrush. So I'm really a child of that of of, of that Windrush where. Um, one parent, in this case, it was my mother, who was sent for by my uncle. She went to the UK and then was followed by, and um, she sent for my father. And then six years later, they sent for their three daughters that they had left in in Portland, Portland, Jamaica. Um, I went to live in, in in Battersea, and for me, it wasn't it wasn't a uh, the early experience wasn't bad insofar as I was with family. That was the best thing about it. The three of us came together and we came and, and we were part of a larger family. Because by that time, my mother had had, uh, my parents, the, 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 the family had expanded. But the experience of, of racism we I certainly encountered was in, in school. And in those days, it was really quite vicious. It was a lot of name calling in, in, in particular. That's what that's what you first experience is what that's what you first understand. But the other kind of stuff, the stuff related to things like going to primary school, uh, being there for six months, and suddenly you're given a test. I mean, I don't even remember taking the test, but that test was the way in which I ended up at the school that I that I went to, which was. Um, which was not seen uh, as, a, as a good school. So I would say experiences of racism there, they're overt, yes, but they're uh, with the name calling, but they're also co covert because there are things that happen to you, systemic things that happen to you that you don't realize until you're part of this system of schooling. Um, so in secondary school, the way I dealt with it was with, I could fight. 
So the name calling, I dealt with it in that way. But, and, and I was put in like a, 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 what would you call it? I call it a sea stream. I don't know if people understand. That means it was not a stream that was going anywhere. And I was in that stream for about three years. But because I kept um, coming to the top of the class at the end of the year, I had one, one teacher, form teacher, who said that, Beverly Bryan was always fighting, but she was always coming to trouble the class. So she, she, every year she went to the headmistress to have me moved, and so I was able to to get to the to the A stream, which was the only stream where they considered you for a public examination. So in my in my five or six years in in England, by that time I was able to sit public. Public, public exams. So I, if, if you talk about living and thriving, I think my, 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 my way of resisting at that time was, through, as I say, through a kind of a fighting, but also really working hard and also being able to rely on one teacher who was able to see something that, that some person that she wanted to support. Um, my parents were not involved in, in, in my in schooling. I don't think they fully understood that schools were in places where you sent your children. There were places where you had to be on top of what was happening in that institution. And that, that really kind of helped me when I myself, when I became a teacher, that I needed to work with parents so that they became involved. I started teaching in, 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 in Brixton in, in a primary school. And I spent a lot of time in the community in Brixton with the parents, talking to them. They had, you know, two, three jobs. Some of them had other children in other schools. They're in low pay. It was, it, it was difficult for them. They were, they were sending for other children that they had left in Jamaica or Barbados or wherever. So, so it was hard. But because of my experience, I, I think I felt I had to involve parents in, 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 my, te in my teaching. So that's a kind of my first question. I'm not, I know I haven't fully answered your question, but I'm just really starting off by saying that migration um, can be a positive experience if you if you have the resources in order to be able to make it a positive experience, but for, especially for children, it can be very, very negative. Is that where you wanted me to start? Listen, you exceeded me, my expectations as usual. Uh, you know, um, thank you so much for starting us off because it does provide a critical context. And, and for Jay too, um, I would love you to chime in and share your experiences as well. Like I said, to provide this intergenerational, even transnational understanding as well. Um, so I guess in terms of um, my experience, or I guess my family's experience of migration um, to this country, kind of, you know, in the similar time period where you have like, you know, this mass migration for the from the Caribbean um, to the UK, um, you also have a lot of migration from Africa, you have, you know, migration from South Asia. Um, you know, I, I think that kind of 
period of time, the kind of 1948 to 1971, the kind of so-called post-war era, um, was this time of kind of really expansive migration, you know, throughout the world, throughout the kind of former colonies, so to speak. Um, you know, in Britain, um, the thing that kind of conditioned this mass migration was the 1948 Nationality Act, in which, um, you know, Britain, in its kind of role as the mother country, so-called mother country of the empire, you know, basically needs you know, workers, workers that they can exploit um, to, you know, rebuild the post-war nation. So you have people coming from all over the world, you know, to come and work in Britain. Um, And as, you know, Dr. Brian was just speaking to, you know, a lot of people, you know, black migrants in particular come to Britain and they, you know, they find themselves um, locked off from, you know, opportunities um, from being able to live their lives with dignity. Um, My grandma came to Britain from Ghana following um, Ghanaian independence in 1957. And, you know, what you have in in that case, like you have, you know, across the diaspora is a, a situation where, you know, they're supposed to be independent. They're supposed to be kind of, you know, past this this kind of um, context of being under British colonial rule. But of course, you then have, you know, economic downturn. You have people still not being able to live their lives on the continent because of those kind of, you know, afterlives of, of slavery and colonialism. Um, so she migrated here to be a nurse in the NHS. And, you know, like so many black women was navigating a really vicious um, color bar you know, that was kind of dictating where she could live, where she could move, where she couldn't move, um, what she could and couldn't do. Um, So, yeah, I I guess what I've really grown up with is hearing her stories of, you know, arriving in this country. I think like a lot of black migrants just being shocked by, (laughs) you know, a lot of people say they they got off the boat or the plane and they were expecting this really beautiful place. And the country was still very much reeling from, from that kind of, you know, wartime era and and really wasn't in good shape. Um, And, you know, just being the people who are tasked with stabilizing this national project, even as a national project, you know, is, is killing them is is kind of limiting their life opportunities um but then you know within that what has been really beautiful in speaking to her and other black women is kind of you know listening to these stories of resistance listening to these stories of people coming together people forming community you know whilst living in the shadow of, of death um so yeah I, I would say in terms of kind of um you know citizenship I, I think it's been something that's been um it's, it's been a different project at different times to service, you know, a, a specific type of national agenda. When it was convenient to the British state, then black people were, you know, included within this category of citizenship. Um, and that category being included in that category of citizenship meant that they were, you know, subjected to these forms of kind of, you know, anti-black violence. And then when they're excluded, when these, you know, immigration laws and nationality acts kind of, you know, successively get passed over the next few years, they're excluded and they're still subjected to anti-Black brutality. So, you know, it's this sort of kind of um, fungibility around kind of Black migrants where, you know, they're, they're kind of being used in certain ways to, um, yeah, to stabilise, to cement a certain type of national agenda at specific historical moments. Can I just say, can I just follow up two things I wanted to follow up from what um, Jade said? One, that thing about um, the 1948 um, Immigration Act, that was really, that was really when they, they, they laid it out that we were supposed to be 
um, British, all British citizens. But since that time, right, they have had one after the other Immigration Act, which is about removing every single one of those, every single one of those rights and um, that we had. And sometimes I think they haven't stopped. And Brexit is really, really the end, really the end, end of that road. I think in 1948, it was about getting us to do a particular kind of work. But once they didn't need it, need us to do that work, then they, one by one, shipping in 62, 68, 71, on and on, until they really kind of removed the British state, I would say, not just a government, because it could be Labour or the Tory government. So there's been that project about whittling down citizenship of black people in, in the UK over um, 50, 60 years. And the other point I, I, I want to make is that the, 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 it might seem a kind of gloomy narrative, but in a, in a lot of ways it was not. There, there was racism, there was a co the colour bar, as you, as you said. But out of that, people did form communities. They were rejected from certain places. They couldn't go into pubs, so they formed their own kind of social welfare um, clubs and played some fantastic music. And some of those clubs are, are still going. They couldn't get housing. There was no Irish, no dogs, no no coloreds. But they developed this this partner system. I know that because my mother, <laughs> you know, she was she was she was a great believer in that partner system where you put together money, you form your little group. You put together money each week, and every week somebody could would collect a certain amount of money for their particular project. That's how she got a deposit for a mortgage in order to be able to buy a house. Where when I went to England as a child, the house it was the first house that they bought. So so I'm really saying that um, yes, they try in all different ways, but we always have some ways, some strategies in which we uh, re resist that kind, those kinds of moves. Okay. Wow. I'm, I'm just like taking it all in, but I appreciate both of you, like I said, providing these different contexts, but also like you were talking about Dr. Brian and also Jade, you know, one Jade, you're talking about the state um, when when is when do we do black people particularly have citizenship and when do we don't um, and how are we exploited for capitalist uh, gain and labor? And then, Dr. Brian, you also talk about like these strategies and interventions where black communities were excluded. Um, I know that, you know, this term resilience uh, has it's like a weighted term, but the resilience of black communities, the resistance, as Jade will talk about in her forthcoming book about refusal. Um, and to continue in that, and that shows like a long legacy of that. And also I would like to say, oftentimes I feel like for me and within the Black Feminist Transnational Project, we forget about the experience of Black migrant women and we need to really center that experience. And so thank you for providing um, you know, both these important contexts. And Jade, I wanted to give you an opportunity to ask Dr. Brian um, a follow-up question or any questions that you may have as we you know, just chit chat, engage in, in this discussion. Thank you so much, Jamie. I guess my question uh, for Dr. Brian would be, you know, 
I, I read an article a few years ago where you said this really beautiful thing, you know, in terms of kind of coming into black organizing and kind of black radicalism and being politicized. And you said something like, you know, the kind of that sort of black power era um, was, you know, the one time where, it, you know, being a dark skinned black girl, dark skinned black woman was, you know, the most beautiful thing. Um, so I guess I really wanted to ask you a bit about, you know, just how you became politicized. What was your journey into coming? into a kind of black radical tradition, black organizing? Oh, oh that's got taking me back. <laughs> um, I, I think it started very in my, probably my mid-teens. It was, uh, part of it was like, it was a personal experience, my experience of encountering racism, but also a part of it just because I was, Somebody who liked to read, I'd come from I'd come from Jamaica. I could read, but I did have access to a lot of books. So, of course, when I came came to the UK, the, the you know I was I was in the library almost every day. So I got really interested in reading and really interested in all kinds of of books. And one of the first um, people that I, I came across I really loved was James Baldwin, and James Baldwin. He really kind of spoke to me. He's a black man in America, but as a young black girl in the UK, he also made a lot of sense. So he introduced me to, um, reading him also introduced me to a lot of literature. So I could say it was my experience. It was the literature I was reading, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, um, being introduced to Marcus, to Marcus Garvey. I know it's a lot of men, but that was what was available um, at that time. It was, but, but it was also about the experience of blackness and what that did to you. Um, but it was also a time when the idea of being black was, was not seen as, as, as being so negative. The, the phrase black, black is beautiful actually did mean something to me um, at that time. I didn't... I didn't just see myself as as just a little black girl coming into this just into school, but also as a beautiful person who had a certain amount of, of power. Um, so apart from that, I, I I could yes I say that the, because of the time I'm not going to say that it wasn't because the 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 ideas of negritude, the idea of, of blackness being beautiful, they were very important. But it was also um, talking to somebody like Olive, who got who was um, involved in um, who had become involved in the Panthers. Or before that, I joined a group called the um, the Black Arts Workshop. Even got that kind of name, you know, the Black Arts Workshop. You could embrace a name like that, yes, because it was about how you expressed your blackness and your beauty in blackness. We took that around to different um, um, youth clubs to introduce young people to the idea that blackness was okay because we still had the color bar, remember, at that, that particular time. You still had to meet those, those kinds of um, um, racist youth on the street. The police were still coming in now and taking the place of some of those um, um, young, young white people. So, so to introduce the idea that they needed to be uh, proud of who they were, we took those um, 
those plays and those poems and the, all of that performance round to the youth clubs. Um, as I said, Ollie was um, a part of the group, group as well. But what she, what had happened to her? I think it was it was in the late it was about sixty eight was that she had been attacked by the um, by the police and beaten up by the police. And when she told me about that, and she told me about uh, about finding out about a group called the the um, Black Panthers in Brixton, I said that you know that perhaps that it, it was something that I should check out. Yeah, and what made it, it also interesting to me was. It was a t- certainly we're thinking about what was happening in, in America as well. So we've always been kind of transnational, yes, thinking about what was happening with um, Martin Luther King, his assassination, um, the ideas of of um, Malcolm X by any means by any means necessary, um, understanding the ideas of uh, Marcus Mosiah Garvey that about black love and really thinking about black empowerment, all of those ideas I took with me um, um, when I joined joined the Panthers. And and I and I must say it was it was for me it was a very good experience. Um, I I just started teaching in Brixton, so it allowed me to put together um, that work in the community with work in the schools. So I could um, search out materials to work with my students because the curriculum was pretty dire. <laughs> what we the material that we so we made a lot of materials. Um, I I insisted that one thing I've always been very keen on is literacy. So I insisted that my children had to read, but it was up to me to decide what kind of material and some of it. You know, we had to make, we had to use all the kind of natural materials. I used to take them out on a lot of trips so that they could go and collect the things, collect the pieces of nature that they could use to write to write about. So the idea was, for me then, was to, was to really to try and integrate your professional life with your activist life. At the same time, I was teaching at primary school. I was also... Um, working with the Panthers on things like their, their Saturday school, the supplementary school. We were um, writing the newsletters that we would sell on on Saturday mornings. We were supporting um, other, other, not just other groups, workers who would come out on strike, um, liberation movements in in Africa and Asia. But also having a good cultural life and a good social life as well, because the thing that people might not realize, those organizations were made up of very young people between the age of 16. Uh, we were, yeah, we were between the age of 16 and say um, 20, 24, 25. Um, the leadership was about third, was slightly older, but the, the mass of the people, we were we were young and we were very excited about being together. Um, we we had to do a lot of studying. It was hard work. <laughs> you know that you had to sit down and make sure you read uh, the Black Jacobins or this chap- particular chapter of um, of um, Das Kapital or 
France Fanon and because we had we were questioned and we had those discussions. So it's, it was a very kind of vibrant, for me it was a very vibrant life. It was vibrant professionally with my work in schools. It was vibrant intellectually because I had to read a lot of material, but it was also vibrant in the interactions I had with, you know, people who were similar to me. And Jade, you mentioned Norma. Norma and people like Danny and Neil and Geneva, people that I still, every time I go to London, these are people that I see see all, see all the time. Uh, so that was my experience of the Panthers. Um, do you want me to tell you a bit about um, the, the women's group? Well, I was in the Panthers for about three years. But, um, and probably people who've looked at these organizations will know that sometimes they do not last. And I, I don't think we have to be pejorative or, or critique and say this, this is terrible. Sometimes organizations, movements that go through phases and they went through a particular phase um, over those black power organizations, which is what we'll call them, because it wasn't just Black Panther movement. There was Black Unity and Freedom Party, Black Liberation Front. There's a whole host of them across uh, across the UK. So they, they went through a, a kind of cycle and they did um, dissipate over about a four or five, five year period. Um, the organization that I was in, the Black Panthers, we, we had started um, a women's caucus. Now, that, that was done for several reasons. The men thought it was a way in which we could get other women in the organization. Yes, that, that, that was what, <laughs> It's not because they became... <laughs> feminists overnight, because at that time, they're, they're, we're talking about the context of time. They, they, they didn't necessarily agree that women should be meeting together, but they also had women's organization in play in, in, in the liberation movements in, in South Africa, in Mozambique, in Angola, all those places they had. So it was understood, yes, maybe the women can get together, but we wanted together in order to be able to um, explore what was an ag agenda for us. What was it that we felt was being left out of what was being discussed and what was being organized uh, organized around. So we and about also where the way in which um, women were treated in the organization that was also um, very very important. Um, there were some there were some women who certainly had more power than others. I mean BPM was being led by um, uh, being a part of the leadership. There were women in the leadership, but they also had particular relations and might have been married to um, other men in, in the leadership. But I think because I was active in that group, because also I was a teacher, so I had my own kind of professional um, life outside of the organization. And, and that's why I think I had no problem with being part of that organization and saying, yes, we must have this organization and we must must come come together. So this is just reflecting on it afterwards, why I was so keen to be uh, uh, to be part of that group. And what that group, Women's Caucus did was that because we'd started to meet, when all the other frictions arose in the organization, we were able to take ourselves out and say, even if the 
Panthers um, dissipated that we had a core that we could continue. And there, there was an agenda there that of women's issues that we wanted to, to discuss, to study. But there are also issues that the Black Panthers are taking up, like education, which is very important, and to anti-racist, anti-fascist uh, struggle, that we had to continue that we had to con continue with. So Bowen's moving into the Black women, black women's group at the time was. Um, I remember it was Olive who spotted the property that that we we took over because we didn't have anywhere to meet. We'd been turfed out of the place we were meeting. We spotted the property and we set up what was the the first bookshop that we sabar books that we had on Railton Road. So we continued with the with the started the bookshop but continued with the organizing around what we saw were the key issues, education, police brutality, police harassment, which was still there. And uh, some of those women's issues that we're talking about, our relationship to men, our relationship to work, and our relationship to the state. So that was how we, we, we moved into that phase. We still continued, continued studying. We always met on a Sunday afternoon and there was always reading, always discussions, always what can we get from this particular article? How can that help us in what else what we want to do, what campaign that we were working on at, at, at the time? So, so that's how we moved into um, BWG, as we called it then, and then it became Brixton Black Women's Group. I should take breath. <laughs> No, this is perfect because I think for so long um, we've seen the erasure of black women and gender expansive activists throughout time, space and place um, around the world. And what you're doing is like where it's like, I don't know for you, Jade, I bet you feel the same way where it's like sitting at the feet of our elder and like getting these, you know, nuggets, not even just nuggets. Like, I don't even know what to call it, but like this, like so much wisdom from you. And you're also um, filling in like the voids that are, you know, you know, so we, we find so much in revisionist white supremacist, cis heteronormative patriarchal histories, right? Which, you know, even just you calling Olive, like saying Olive, I'm like Olive Morris, oh my goodness. Um, you know what I mean? And just your friendship together, which is why I want to yeah. talk to Jade too, because your book, um, Rebel Citizen, to me, I, I can't wait till it comes out follows in the line in the same vein of like heart of the race. Um, and I just was like really curious as to why, like why rebel citizen and why this book? And like, I know you spoke to Dr. Brian before, but how important is it to, you know, um, do the memory work and the archival work and the interviews to make sure that black women's experiences are seen, heard, felt um, to, to overcome those revisionist histories? Thank you. Um, no, so you're absolutely right. Um, you know, Rebel Citizen as a piece of work, you know, even from the moment of conception um, up to, you know, right this second um, has very much, you know, been, um, I guess, written in the vein or, you know, written within this kind of longer tradition of, you know, Black women's writing, both in Britain, but also, you know, throughout the diaspora, there are so many kind of like Black women who, you know, who 
writing has made this piece of work possible. Um, you know, just to kind of, I guess, really briefly um, give you a kind of, um, or to contextualize how I came to, you know, want to write the book. I started a master's a few years ago um, and I was, you know, writing my dissertation on the Black women's movement. Um, so, you know, very much looking at Brixton Black Women's Group, um, very much looking at OA, the Organization of Women of African and Asian Descent. Um, so, you know, I, <laughs> was trying to kind of at the beginning read through these history books and kind of you know map the trajectory of of this movement that you know so many of us are not taught anywhere um you know I came I think I found out about the black women's movement in 2014 because I went to an exhibition at the black cultural archives and they were kind of mapping this history of black women's lives in Britain and I remember coming across this huge display about OAD and I was like wait 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 <laughs> what you know there was this you know kind of huge kind of um militant movement of organized black women in this country that you know I had no idea about so that's really how I came across it so you know when I started the masters I wanted to you know do some work on the movement but you know the the literature that I found was still quite limited so I was like you know what like let's let's make this an oral history um you know let, let's see how this turns out so you know just from there I um you know did a lot of researching did a lot of trying to connect with um the women who were part of the movement which of course um included Dr Brian so I, I spoke to her from um um, I think from this place, like just right now, like I was sitting across this <laughs> table, exactly. <laughs> um, so it was really, really lovely, a really beautiful kind of intergenerational experience where, you know, I, I was literally just a master student, like, I want to investigate this. And, you know, <laughs> Dr. Brian, Miss Stella Dadzi, um, Suzanne Scape, you know, so many people, uh, Dr. Gail Lewis, you know, really embraced me um, and kind of, you know, spoke to me about their different experiences, you know, provided me with this analysis. Um, and, you know, in, in that way, I feel like that was also a huge kind of um it was a political education in and of itself you know coming to write that dissertation um alongside writing the dissertation I had another project where I had to write an oral history essay um about my grandmother so I you know as I kind of mentioned she migrated to Britain in 1959 and you know we've always been very close so I um you know wanted to ask her more about her stories her, her memories and also her analysis as well um of the time and you know what came out of that was just it, it just changed my life I you know, I thought I I knew about her experiences, but there was so much that I I I didn't know. So um, you know, just kind of coming on from that, you know, a couple of years later, I was like, you know what, let's revisit this. Like, let, let's revisit this a bit. Um, so you know, I kind of <laughs> at the time kind of like tweeted my intent. It was like the first of January, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to undertake like a year long oral history project with my grandma. You know, just kind of asking her about her experiences. She's very open. She's very patient, um, and her memory is just incredible. So um, you know, just from kind of speaking to her, I'd go to her house. We'd you know have these lunches, and I'd just turn on the the tape recorder, and we'd just be talking. Um, and you know, just from talking to her, I was like. Interesting. I wonder what other Black women who came from the Caribbean and who came from Africa around that historical period would have to say about their experiences. I wonder, you know, not just in terms of their memories, but again, their analysis. You know, I wanted to center Black women as um, political actors in their own right who have this, you know, long history of, of you know, radicalism um, and everyday resistance that might not kind of show up 
in kind of more dominant narratives of, of black resistance. Um, so yeah, just kind of, you know, started going up and down the country. Well, this, this was pre-corona, you know, going up and down the country, you know, just, you know, people really, really embraced me once again um, and kind of, you know, invited me into their homes, were very kind of open about their experiences. Um, so, you know, that's really how Rebel Citizen came about. But what I was, you know, interested in terms of, I guess, the conceptual framework of, of Rebel Citizen was kind of, you know, getting to the heart of this tension with citizenship. Um, and once again, kind of trying to, you know, tease out these entanglements, the way that, like I said, black people are incorporated within a national project at certain times. And then they're kind of, you know, um, you know, rights, so to speak, are removed. Um, but also, you know, people who know that they have never been included within this national project and have no desire to be included. So, you know, what do they do? As Dr. Brian was saying earlier, you know, people forming communities, um, you know, coming together um, in, in kind of solidarity in really beautiful ways and in ways that is not trying to that in ways that are not trying to kind of be included in, in this idea of citizenship that, you know, exceed this project of citizenship and fundament, fundamentally challenge, um, you know, the state. So, you know, it, it's, it's just been an incredible journey. I, I've, you know, been kind of writing about reproductive justice in the 60s and 70s. I've been, you know, looking at sex work. I've been looking at, you know, the um, history of black trans women in Britain. So it's just been, you know, really kind of um, beautiful experience, really expanding um and yeah I'm, I'm still kind of like bringing all the threads together but I'm I'm yeah it's, it's just been life-changing but um I guess my last word would would be you know I was saying to Dr Brian before we started um this conversation that I was speaking to someone who was involved you know a, a woman called Norma who she mentioned earlier who was involved in the Panthers and then you know um black women's organizing specifically and you know I I I came to her through one of my best friends um introduced me um you know just really randomly and she was saying that um she kind of got involved in the Panthers and she met Dr. Brian and Dr. Brian was the first black teacher she'd ever met in her life and how that kind of you know, changed the course of her life and set her on a really particular trajectory. She became a teacher herself. Um, and what I really loved about it was that it wasn't just about, you know, or exceeded this idea of representational politics. It wasn't just about seeing, you know, someone who was black and a teacher. It was about the radical politics that, you know, Dr. Brian was espousing, how that shaped um, her teaching practice and, and you know, just this very kind of um, critical idea of black liberation um, being central to how, you know, they were kind of teaching black children, um, you know, and, and that kind of sense of wider political education. Um, I guess, speaking of which, um, I guess I wanted to ask Dr. Brian, I know, um, you know, Bricks and Black Women's Group were involved with so many different kind of campaigns and kind of forms of organizing. And I know when we spoke, you mentioned uh, the West Indian Parents Action Group and the Mary Seacole Group, for example. Um, so could you just kind of speak a bit more to, I guess, the kind of, you know, organizations, campaigns um, and political agenda that you were kind of organizing around at the time? Yes. OK, so. What I said before, remember, it was the Sunday afternoons where we all came together. But um, most of the members of the Brixton Black Women's Group were involved in different organizations. Yeah. So, yes, people did come to us and say, you know, can you help us with this? But we, for example, I was uh, a part of the uh, 
I worked with the West Indian Parents Action Group. We also ha had a Saturday school. We had um, um, uh, a campaign, uh, the police police harassment campaign group called Black People Against Black People Against. It's called Bash. Black people against state harassment. <laughs> yes, um, there was a there was a Mary C. Cole craft group. So the 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 people, there are people in BWG were also part of these organizations. These organizations we either actually set up or we were in some kind of leadership role in them, and then we would we would report back on Sundays about what was happening in these groups and in what way we were going to take. Um, that that kind of agenda forward, and there's also, of course, the Sabah Bookshop, where that's where we that's where we met, and we all, in fact, were part of running it. It was a volunteer group of us. We all gave like half a day or a day, what, whatever time we could, in order to get to get to keep that running. Um, the international groups that we there were different international groups, um, but they were more likely to be one-off. There, there might be um, a campaign to support a particular group in in Sri Lanka or in South Africa or to support a picket or, or something like that. But the, the main thing was to see the group as being the center of a kind of network of different groups and projects that we were that were involved in. Most of them were focused on um, women on on women's organization, but they weren't all. So you had a Mary C. Cole craft group, which we worked with young women who were trying to um, become independent and self-sufficient. Um, there was the um, the Bash the Black People Against State Harassment. That would be more supporting um, people who got arrested and who needed to to have their case dealt with. So you might go to court with them. If it was a big enough case, there might be a demonstration around those particular those particular people. If it was a Saturday school, we try and get people workers to help with the with it. Um, so there were different different. Um, Different different issues that we felt that we we that that we felt that we could support, or we'd support them by seeding out um, the membership in these different organisations in the in the in a network in the best feminist way that a network should work. There was no hierarchical leadership, which was which was unlike the organizations we, we were used to. We, we always saw ourselves as a collective, yes? That people bring ideas and those ideas had to be interrogated and the best ideas, hopefully, would win out and the, the action taken would come from that, that, those kinds of best ideas. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I'm... I'm just loving um, just like there's so much said and so much to take in, but I really love what you both talked about. It reminds me of like the importance of uh, building community with particularly with black women and like the black women's intimacies, mm -hmm. communities of care. And also um, when we talk about, I always talk about archival work, we're walking archives, right. And the importance mm -hmm. of 
Um, you know, connecting with family members, connecting with, you know, what we would call everyday people in our lives to really get their stories. Right. And you don't have to be, quote unquote, a, a scholar to do this type of critical work. Right. You can do this. Um, you know, I call myself like a, a grassroots hood archivist, maroon archivist. Um, and I think that it's important that we do that to um, really get our stories and go back and fetch what is at risk of being left behind. And thank you, Dr. Brian, for laying the, the groundwork. Thank you, Jade, for continuing the work. And me as um, a Black feminist um, living in the United States, it's so important for me to engage with these conversations and to, and to ensure the centrality of um, my sisters and siblings, because oftentimes U.S. Black feminisms have taken over uh, by, by proxy because uh, of the U.S. imperialism and superpower and all sorts of things. But learning from both of you, I hope this um, pushes our audience to learn more about the critical work that has been done and that's currently happening. And I mean, currently happening and will continue um, and particularly in a British context of what black women are doing, what we've always been doing, what you've always been doing, what you'll continue to do. Um, and so thank you so, so, so much. Um, the last question, because I know we're going to get into the Q&A and I'm seeing in the chat, everyone's people have a lot of questions now, um, oh. but <laughs> they're excited. But um, Dr. Brian, I would just really love to know what type of advice and wisdom um, that you would like to give to particularly younger black feminists, organizers and activists. Um, and Jade, and I also too, like this could be my question, but I would like for you to have the last question. So if you have any questions as well, just feel free to hop in. Okay. Let me put a little caveat about what we what I said before, because in this you have to be totally honest. I think um, it was the a lot of the women involved in 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 the movement in the Black women's movement. They did a lot, quite a few of them. I would say maybe fifty percent. They did come from. Let, let us say that the women who might have been students, or like myself, who were teachers, who had more time. So I, I don't want to say that they were all grassroots women. Certainly, of course, there was a mixture. There was in the West in the West Indian parents uh, um, action group. It was it was just parents, parents who wanted to, to get something done for the children, or in the craft group, the women who who wanted work. And so they became uh, involved in the group. So I'm saying that there was a mixture. I don't want to say that it was all one, one, one particular time. And the other thing I wanted to say is I always, and this probably links to what you're saying about advice, is about um, self-care, <laughs> which is something I've learned from young people <laughs> nowadays. The way myself and Norma might have said it is that we took on too much and um, we didn't spend enough time on ourselves. So if you're talking about advice, I think that is that is important for you always to be taking stock of what you're doing, how what time you're spending on it, what time you're giving to yourself, recognizing that, you know, even though you have this kind of drive to do it, there are other people. And the best way to, 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 to deal with it is to hold hold hands, maybe sometimes literally, maybe not now with COVID, but hold, keep that kind of connection with other women and with other allies. Um, so, and recognize that, you know, that 
and this again goes back to to the ways in which I think we could have done things because you, we, I I thought at, at the time when I I was I was most active like in especially in the Panthers you thought that you were going to change the world you were personally responsible and you were going to but but one person and one time it's done with the collective with the group and it's done and it's over a period of time and understanding the focus understanding your goals understanding that you you don't smash what you do is degrade and weaken those systems of power and authority that have so much um, that have that have our, our lives in check. It does. We have to play the long game and understand that all the gains we make. Uh, this is my word of the year. Everything is provisional. Gains are provisional, and if they're not, they're comp- they're always fought for time and time again. And you always have to be vigilant, and you always have to be focused. But you also have to pay attention to the people, to the warriors and the allies that you're that you're working with, and that, that they're part uh, and support them and support each other. So maybe I'll stop there. Um. <laughs> And I guess my question would be, um, so I'm, I'm kind of going to redirect it slightly to writing. Um, yeah. You know, I was kind of saying to you earlier, there was this really beautiful tradition. I know you've mentioned it um, during this conversation, but there was this really beautiful tradition, both, you know, in the Panthers and then extended within Brixton Black Women's Group and then OAD of, you know, writing collectively together. So, you know, publishing Black women's newsletters, Black women's journals, kind of, you know, selling them or giving them away for free um, on the roadside. Um, so so I kind of wanted to ask you a bit more about that process um, of pulling together these different kind of um, forms of political knowledge um, and histories. And then I guess, um, you know, the kind of second part of that um, question, if I can be a little cheeky, would be, um, you know, the kind of how did you, you, you know, Dr. Scaife and uh, Miss Zeladazi kind of come together to start writing um, The Heart of the Race. And, um, you know, it was republished it was reprinted in 2018 so what do you feel or what do you hope that kind of newer audiences or younger black feminists might be able to take away or how might we be able to engage with the text now okay so the the early the the things like speak out and freedom news i didn't because because i was saying the hierarchy of um of black, some of the black power, and I didn't, I didn't write for for it, but I was certainly involved in the sale of it with BWG, um, BWG as I call it, Black Brixton Black Women's Group. Um, we we're all involved in some way in writing it. We didn't sit down and write it together, but we'd sit and discuss what it is we we're going to put in it, and what. Um, each person, what each person was going to write, and they would write according to their strength. So if you had someone who was a nurse, they they would be the person who did the, the, the stuff on um, sickle cell or Depo-Provera. Um, I did um, stuff on education. I was always interested in the immigration, in the immigration. So we wrote according to, according to our strengths and then would come together and one or two people would do the editorial work of making sure everything went on the page. And of course, then we'd have to take it away. The old days, we had to take it away to the printers um, to get it printed. So it was collectively done and we all, it was was totally um, volunteer work. And then other people were poets, would add their poetry or they would go and see a, a play. See for colored girls, I, I remember that one. And they would, they would write a review 
um, uh, um, for it. So it was all collective. It was, I don't think there was any question that we should have our names on it. It just was just how we work. That's how political organizations work. I think in the Panthers, they said, oh, they didn't want, because there was a concern that the special branch was um, surveilling the Panthers. I didn't know much about it at that time, but I understand that was an issue. And, and generally, uh, I think the police and the state, they were interested in, in, in what we were doing. But we, we certainly, we didn't put names, there weren't names on the um, black newsletters, black power newsletters. And we certainly, it was just the way we worked, is that it was all done as a collective, right? We were the Sabah collective that ran the bookshop. We were the, the black women's group that ran the study group and the, the campaign networks. But we were just women who would, who would just work together. That continued um, into OWAD and the heart of the race came about when um, I think Stella at the time was working for, um, she was working as, she did some review work for Virago and Amrit Wilson had produced a book called Finding a Voice about Asian women in, um, the, in the UK. And they asked her if um, our group uh, would be, if there was any interest in writing a similar book for African and African Caribbean women. Um, she brought it to the group and we said that we would, um, we were interested in it. And we set up, of course, a bookshop collective. You know, we, we are, <laughs> work collectively. So we started off the planning and all of that. That started off with a collective of about 13, 15 people. But as you know, Jade and Jamie, writing is not easy. <laughs> so. <laughs> There's the best will in the world, <laughs> will in the world, you know. When it comes and if you think about how you're going to put together a book, um, 13, 15 people, uh, it, it didn't work. So we kept on having meetings and the planning and talking about how we we're going to organize it. Eventually, it whittled down to um, three or four of us. Um, Girlin Bean was one of the people who would have been there. But she, she decided that she was going to go to Zimbabwe. She was a nurse, and she was going to work with some of the injured um, freedom fighters who had just come back and, and needed um, physiotherapy. She was, so she was going to work with them. So she didn't stay with us. But Suzanne joined and said she would, that she would join us. She, as you know, all three of us are, are teachers. We're used to working to timelines. We're all teachers in the area of English, language, Stella was teaching, I think, German or communication at that time. So we decided that we would continue with it. And when we took it to Virago for the final um, sign-off, um, they said that um, you cannot sign it as a bookshop, as the um, as a collective, because if any if people disapprove and decide to sue, they must know who they're going to sue. So that they would only give us a contract with the three names on it. So that's how it came. And then we put it in um, alphabetical order. So I am Brian, Dad's is second, and Scape is third. So that's how, that's how it came about. It was it really was supposed to have been a, a collective. And in fact, we have a we have one little article by Loretta Enkober that's called the book the what's it called? The book collective. But that that's how it came about. Um, 
that that's our preferred way of working. The other thing is that we wanted to include the other women, so that's why we put the name of the names of the women at the beginning of the book because it's a hundred women through our same network, the same network that we had in BWG. You know, this organization, you you interview somebody there, you or you sit down with a glass of with a bottle of wine and a tape recorder. <laughs> And you interview somebody and they say, oh, that was so good. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> and that's how we got 100, 100 women to um, to do it. And and their names are at the front. Um, most people say it's the best way to do it. Though some people said maybe you should put their names underneath. But a lot of women wouldn't have um, agreed to do it at that time if we had said, oh, we're going to use your name. But they were very happy to bring out their most, their best self. When they when they knew they they were going to their voices would be there because they all bought a copy and knew and turned to the page where they were, but they didn't have to put their names on it. So that's how it came. Wow. Okay. I just want to say thank you both um, for such insightful, generative, and like really funny conversation. Let me tell you something about Dr. Brian. I was so nervous to meet Dr. Brian. I was like, oh my gosh, this is Dr. Beverly Brian. And she just had me cracking up on uh, the Zoom call. And I was just like, this is going to be such a great time. And Jade, like I said, I've heard so many wonderful things about you. I'm so excited for your work. And thank you for, like I said, Dr. Brian for laying the groundwork and Jade for continuing the work. It's been such like a pleasure and honor. I can't believe the hour has come upon us and we're about oh, to go. Yes, to has, it's done. It's I know. Fun. I mean, it's like, you know, a little sister girl chat over here. So well, that's how it should be. <laughs> yes, definitely. And we have questions actually um, from the audience. Um, and so I think um, take, I think I can ask this question. So Dr. Brian, how did you or do you manage the discomfort of staying in black orgs where feminism isn't a thing? Unity matters, but so do the intersections and the resulting oppressions. It's hard to know when to stay and go. Okay. Well, Remember, I'm, we're talking about, I don't know if I could manage it now, but <laughs> I would deal with them. <laughs> but, um, we're talking about a long time ago. We're talking about this, the 70s, right? Um, and what I always think is that if, there is, if there's an issue, is that you find people that you can work with. If you if you're in a if you're in a mixed organization and you want to talk and you feel uncomfortable and you want to to deal with those issues, then you caucus. I'm a great believer in in organizations finding the people who are like minded who can support you, who can who can give you strength, and you strengthen each other. You find those those people, those allies to to caucus with. So if I was in one now, I I, I think I would be able to to manage because I have. 40 years, 40 odd years of, of dealing with it. But at the time, why I thought I was able to deal with it was because I was um, I was a teacher. And so I had a professional life that I, I was I was not dependent on that organization to, to define me. I was already de defined as being something else. I was a teacher in a community at, at the same time. So I think you have to find find the way 
find, find ways of strengthening yourself. And I think the strength comes with focusing, but recognizing your other lives as well and the strength that comes from that. I don't, I don't know if that helps. Uh, yeah, it did. It definitely did. And we appreciate it. Your, your response. Cause it's so important. And for Jade, um, one of the questions was, have you come across stories of conflict and how were they dealt with? Um, I'm not sure if that provides, gives you too much or too little context or if you need any more, but um, yeah, feel free to share. Thank you. Um, I think if I'm understanding the context of the um, question correctly, I think it's um, stories of conflict within like organizing, like black women's historical organizing and and, and um, stuff like that. I guess um, one of the biggest areas of conflict that I've come across, and this is more within my kind of like master's research and um, I guess PhD research would be looking at, you know, the black women's movement. And I guess, you know, different women's, um, you know, analyses, um, memories of the end of OAD in particular. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. to Dr. Brian about this at the time because I, you know, I asked everyone, you know, what do you remember about the end of OAD? How would you analyze mm-hmm. it? Um, I think there's a kind of historical consensus um, in terms of, you know, the kind of uh, conditions um, that brought about the end of OAD. And, you know, people kind of concentrate on things like the premise of Afro-Asian unity within the movement kind of breaking down. And then people concentrate or focus on um, the experiences of Black queer women within the organization um and the kind of you know silencing that happened around their experiences so what i you know wanted to do i guess when i was speaking to each person is is literally just to hear what they had to say and you know make space for all of those remembrances and i think um it was such a rich discussion because so much grew out of that you know what i hadn't seen within the historical record and you know what dr brian mentioned earlier was also this idea of burnout amongst black women you know black women becoming exhausted like you know organizations having um a particular um, you know, coming together in a particular time and sometimes that not always, you know, working out long term or maybe speaking to particular conditions that are needed urgently then and the conditions change at some point. So, you know, that was really helpful. Um, I think it was important for me in particular to, you know, center the voices of black queer women as well within the organization and the kind of forms of activism that happened in the aftermath um, of OAD, but also the political reckoning that happened within different black women's groups. So um, I know that, you know, Brixton Black Women's Group in 1983 wrote this, um, you know, article um, called On Black Women Organizing, where they, you know, kind of critically analyzed the end of OAD um, and kind of, you know, the kind of political mistakes and the, the kind of forms of political growth that happened mm-hmm. in the aftermath of that conflict. So I think, you know, that was really important because conflict will happen in movements, you know, um, and, you know, some of those conflicts, not all of them, but some of them were also generative in terms of what came next, what, you know, happened mm. after. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's how I deal with conflict. You know, it happens, it exists, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try and brush past it. I'm going to try and reckon with it, sit with it, sit with these tensions. Um, and sometimes they're just tensions. You have to explore all of them, you know. Um, it can't always be resolved, but that, you know, is, is part of the kind of political history of, of black radicalism, um, not just in the UK, but throughout the world. Definitely. Thank you so much for that, Jade. Um, and Dr. Brian, did you have a follow up to that or were you just oh, in a maybe, maybe I, I should just add that's what that's why I, 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 I talked about self-care and about not taking not taking on too much because they were 
let's say these these were issues that were that became as you say, conflicts at the time. Um, Afro-Asian unity was, in fact, that was there from the very beginning because the, because once you find that space, so many people will say that you have made the space big enough for them to um, to be a part of it. And that, that was the first, that the, the, the idea of Afro-Asian unity was was a, was the first issue, the first conflict. And you remember in the in our on our banner, it says OWAD. Um, it was Organization of Women of Africa because before it was going to be women women from ZANU, SWAPO, and the ANC were who were part of that group, women of Africa and African descent, and. They, with, even before we had the first conference, there were women who came to us <laughs> who said, you know, why why have we been we, we in silence? In fact, they're accused of, that, of acting like men, which was the biggest, <laughs> it, it, was, it, was, it was very problematic. So I said there was a certain, there was a certain amount, but it's about how you listen and whether you talk or whether you actually take on that position as though you are, people are treating you as though you are the leader, when in fact what you want to do is to be able to take on this issue. The same when we had the second conference, I remember, and a group of lesbian women came to us and said, why aren't we, why, why aren't we included on this agenda? And you have to say, what, it, what is it that you, that you want to be included? In what way are you being excluded? So it's a sense in which the, you've been put in a position. This is this is me personally now. It's the position of leadership that was, to, to, to a certain extent, I felt that was imposed on me because I didn't feel I was capable of ta- taking more than my my corner and dealing with the, with, with with those issues uh, as I saw them. I, 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 and that's why I said, don't you can't take on too much. You decide what it is that you can manage. And also the thing about um, self care. If you decide that you know your your this this your back is this bridge, and it's not. You know, for too long we be we you know we make our way superhuman and we're not. Um, you take on what it is that you can manage and work with, with with that particular goal and recognize. And this is what I've recognized doing the, the recent bit of research. What we're talking about is not so new. You know, black people have been organizing in in the UK for the last hundred years. That that um. The film I told you about, that documentary that I was making, I start in 1918 with the riots in Liverpool, yes? Uh, Talking about those um, Pan-African organizations, Seamen, Seafarers organization, um, the Garveyites, Amy Garvey, all of those, this organization has been going for a long time, so there is not one little space. Make your space, you know, and go with it. Listen, I'm hearing self-care and I'm hearing no, saying no. And those are the hardest two things. Make for me. your space. <laughs> <laughs> Take the leadership. <laughs> Take the leadership. <laughs> Definitely make my space and saying no. So and self-care. So thank you so much for, for that. And I think we have um I think there's a couple well, more questions. People must be um you- those people must be have all their questions we haven't answered. <laughs> yeah, but we've answered we've answered most of them. But um, there's one. I mean, there's another one. It's for you, Dr. Brian. 
Um, they asked, you mentioned Baldwin when you were younger. Who are you reading and most influenced by now? Oh, well, I don't read as much as I should. <laughs> I'm just about to open. Um, because I told you I saw um, the Underground Railroad. And I said, I'm going to start looking at... Um, I'm going to start looking at Andrea Levy, the long song. I started it re recently because it's about um, African Car enslaved people in, in the Caribbean. And I want to go back to, to that period because I really want to... I, I, I think the story of what happened to us, especially as people, not as you know, plantations and plantocracies and systems, but as people, the folk, right? I'm, I'm, I'm using my family to really, um, as I said to, I think it was to you, Jamie, that I, I, I want to do a, like an ethnography of my district in Portland, just to find about the people, how they lived, how they survived in that. So so, so the, the book I've just opened is, um, is, um, Andrea Levy's book, which I want to work on. I've, before that, I've read, well, black women like Dan Brown, people like that, Edwin Dantecat, people like that. So I'm still, I, I want to go back to some, uh, some of the older ones that I read before, like the person I love more than any other is Gloria Naylor. And I, I, I saw a little... <laughs> I saw a little scene from somewhere. I think it might even have been in um, um, Underground Railroad. And I said, um, I thought she was she was a wonderful writer. And I've read all of her stuff, and I want to go back and read it. When I have time from my Portland family history, and I'm really... Okay. Somebody wants to ask one more question. Yes. Uh, Jade said, Jade, Jade wants to ask you one more question, yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> I guess, you know, just to kind of um, round out this just beautiful discussion, um, you know, and, and really speak to this idea of kind of an intergenerational conversation. Um, you know, I was saying in terms of the, um, you know, republication of Heart of the Race in 2018, you know, what do you want, um, I guess, or how do you want black, younger black feminists or, you know, black feminists who are maybe new to the text um, to engage with it? And how do we continue to foster an intergenerational conversation going forward? <laughs> I don't know. Well, we continue to have these conversations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way. Um, it was republished I think it was the year of uh, it was the year of the suff the hundredth year anniversary of the suffragettes. It was twenty eighteen, right? Yeah, I think that was why it was republished. We had it a conversation at the end between the three of us um, to bring it more more up to date. Uh, what I'd really like is for more the work you were doing, um, Jay. That's that's what I think is important because when we did the Heart of Race, we thought it was going to be one of many books of that kind coming coming down the line. Um, we've had, there have been others, but, but I think they've been more academic. And what we really want is for books that anyone can pick up and read. I know that Heart of the Race ended up in a lot of university libraries, but it was, it was really meant to go into the local bookshop and for people there to read it. But, and I think a lot of women who are not... Um, you know, we're not academics, have read it, have had 
um, young people bring their mother's copy <laughs> to me. Young women <laughs> bring their mother's copy for me to autograph. So I think that's been heartening to, to know that that it has been passed down um, through, from one generation to another. And I hope the writing, the writing you're doing, will will be like that, with something that, you know, other young women, women can read. We really need more of these stories. People need to... More people need to sit down with those, like as you did with your grandmother, yeah? Because there are generations that um, had all this rich experience of, in many cases, of fighting certain battles. And, uh, and that's why I'm saying you, you only realize that these things are provisional when you see what they've been through, what they've fought for, what they've gained, and what you're still having to um, have it to fight uh, fight for, you know? The the Black Lives Matter is in 2020, or oh, it didn't start in 2020. If you think about it, it's in, I think it started with, um, after the Florida case, um, Trevon, Trevon, yep. yeah? That, that, it's, it's, it's a few years old, but they've been killing um, young black men and women in, in jails and on the streets, certainly in the UK, for 50, 60 years, yes? And we just have to be not just persistent, but more focused and just keep keep, keep it going rather than what we do is we tend to fall back. You know, if some people fall back, then you immediately need another set uh, to be pushing, to be pushing and pulling, uh, pulling forward. That's what that's what you, that's what the intergenerational thing should be about. It's always about a, 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 a let me not say passing the battle. <laughs> let me not say that. What I really mean is that you should have people. There should always be some people there who can take the take the message, take the fight, take the struggle forward. Definitely. Wow. Um, honestly, I'm just. So full from this conversation, full in a great way, in a good way. I want to thank you both, Dr. Brian, excuse me, the Dr. Beverly Brian and the Jade Bentil for <laughs> such a full conversation. It's been such a pleasure to learn from you, to, uh, you know, hear about your leadership, to hear about the, the, the amazing work that you all do, that you both do. And to have, like I said, this generative intergenerational and transnational conversation among black feminists. And, and I just want to say thank you so much for saying yes. This is a dream come true. And I also want to say thank you to Haymarket Books for being such a wonderful uh, partner, collaborator. Thank you for hosting this event. And I, we hope to continue to do more events just like this. So thank you so much for your time, both of you. And thank you for continuing to be um, the leaders that we need um, and we always need. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.